Welcome to a special edition of the Horns 24-7 flagship podcast. Lance Blanks was a basketball player at Virginia who transferred to Texas when he left with 2,133 points. It was the most point total by a two-year player in Texas basketball history. He became a first-round draft pick of the Detroit Pistons and was a rookie on the Bad Boys team that lost to the Chicago Bulls and walked out of the arena with eight seconds left. Uh, we'll talk to him about that. And then he went on to become a scouting director for the San Antonio Spurs, the assistant GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron James was there. Lance Blanks was instrumental in getting Booby Gibson, Daniel Gibson, Texas Longhorn, on the Cavaliers with LeBron James. And then he became the GM of the Phoenix Suns. So we hit a lot of topics coming up here with Lance Blanks. Joined here now um, by Lance Blanks, who was a rookie member of the Detroit Pistons uh, during the last dance in, you know, episode encounter between the Pistons and the Bulls when Michael Jordan and the Bulls finally ascended in the Eastern Conference Finals and took down those bad boy Pistons. Lance, you were a rookie member of that team, of course, a star at Virginia, and then you transferred to Texas. And what's interesting is, I didn't know this about you, and I've known you for years, you were friends with Michael Jordan before you became a member of the bad boy Pistons. Is that right? Yeah, I, I actually was uh, friends with, with Michael. I was fortunate to get to meet him after high school or shortly after high school. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Fred Whitfield, who is arguably probably Michael's best friend. Uh, I'd gotten to know Fred in Houston when I was being recruited by Virginia. And Fred invited me to his camp uh, when I got there. And Fred and another guy, B.J. Johnson, who also works in the NBA, took me up because they knew how much I looked up to Michael coming up in high school. And they literally took me up to meet him um, before we played. And he, it was just phenomenal getting to meet him. And he, he acted like we'd known each other for years and, and teased me about the resemblance in terms of the way we looked. And just phenomenal experience as a high school kid going into college, particularly playing in the ACC at the time. So, so then you find yourself drafted by the Detroit Pistons. You're a rookie on the team in 1991 when you all are playing the Chicago Bulls. And, of course, now we know there's this epic moment where the Pistons decide to walk out uh, as they're losing the series in the final eight seconds of that game. And it became this huge thing, as we saw in the last dance. Michael Jordan still hasn't let go of it. Um, but now here you are, a rookie on the bench. Tell us what happened in those final eight seconds. Well, I'm sitting on the bench. I'm not even dressed out. I'm, I'm literally sitting in the midst of what's taking place. In fact, uh, at, that, at that time, Chuck, uh, Coach Brendan Malone, <laughs> Uh, Brendan Sawyer, those are the coaches. They're, they're to my right. The, the, some of the players are to my left. Others are standing up. Chuck's not on the bench. He's kind of standing on the baseline having conversation. I can hear these guys on my left side, and I'm looking at what's on the court, and the game is starting to end, and I hear some discussion about rolling out or leaving, and 
Mark and I are sitting there, and the next thing I know, literally guys are starting to walk right down the sideline out. And so Mark and I, like, we couldn't just sit there by ourselves. So we started walking behind the guys. And I think I was, I think I was just behind Isaiah. And, I mean, I had the blinders on. And as you're getting off the court, uh, Jack McCloskey, the general manager, he's there. He's starting to hug guys. Fans are screaming and crying. And it's very emotional moment. And I'm just taking stock of the environment and trying to get out of the building, get in the locker room. And it is just eerily quiet. And, you know, guys, it's, it's been a long run, a hard fought battle. And uh, the next thing I know, things blow up the next day because of the huge walkout, if you will. It didn't even dawn on me at the moment. All I was trying to do is do the right thing, be a good teammate and get out of the building. Follow, follow your leaders, right? Follow exactly. Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lane Beer. But as we saw on the last dance, you walked right in front of the Chicago Bulls bench. And, of course, Michael Jordan was on the bench at that time. It, the game was basically over. So tell us what happened after that. Well, Chip, it, it, you know, it, it came in waves. Of course, obviously, uh, you you read the next day, so you're hearing about how bad this was, depending on what side you, you're on. And then it would come up every so often, and then it went dormant. But the next summer, I went back to camp. And, I mean, Michael, we were, we were about to play because we typically play in Fred's camp, and Michael laid into me like something else. Now, you got to remember, I'm look, I look up to Michael like – you know, like a, a mentor or a bigger brother or whatever the case may be. So I was like, what are you talking about? And I mean, he went at me, he said, you know, we're closer than that. How can you not uh, shake hands at, at the end of the game? Sally shook my hand. Joe D shook my hand. And Joe D and I are extremely close. So I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even realize those guys managed to shake, uh, shake Michael's hands. And so um, it just, it snowballed from there. I mean, he never let it go so much till, I mean, he just kept going the whole day. And he was extremely, extremely disappointed that we, we didn't shake hands. And then, I don't know, maybe 10 years, 12 years ago, someone calls me and they're like, hey, can't believe Michael uh, donated a page in his book. It's like, what are you talking about? Like he literally had written it in his book, what occurred in the game and pretty much explained the whole story. But fortunately, since then, we have men defenses. We spent a lot of time together and, you know, in various places we cross paths or what have you. So, you know, all of that is behind us. But, yeah, he took it. He, he took it pretty serious in terms of what occurred. Well, and. Lance Blanks, uh, of course, a rookie on the Detroit Pistons during that 91 Eastern Conference final against the Bulls. But you went on uh, to become an assistant GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James uh, and then GM of the Phoenix Suns. So you and Michael have crossed paths many, many times since then. Has he ever brought it back up beyond that that summer after camp or did he let it go? I mean, and now watching this and seeing him talk about it, what's your, your take on just how competitive this guy is and how much bad blood there was between your Pistons and, and his Bulls? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked it that way. So what happened is 
you know, careers went where they went. And eventually uh, I made my way to the front office. I was working in San Antonio and we were at an event at the time. Those events were in um, it's like an all college all star game, if you will, in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, uh, Michael was there. He, w- he was with the Wizards at the time. In fact, he had, I think just was just when he um, came back. I, I don't know if he had already stopped playing or was about to play for the Wizards. But anyway, he was with the Wizards, as was Fred. I saw him, and Fred's like, man, what's going on? We, you know, everything going all right? Yeah, it's going great. And he says, you know, Michael's up there, man. And, and, and somehow he just kind of mentioned, <laughs> he mentioned what occurred. Now, Michael, you know, he, uh, truth be told, he's, he's got a memory like an elephant. He, he doesn't obviously forget things. So, I literally walked up there, and I, now I'm a front office guy. I walked up there. I'm like, hey, Mike, what's going on? What's going on? You know, we did the brother hug thing, and oh, everything's great. I said, hey, man, you know how bad I feel about what happened. He goes, well, I said, hey, you know what I'm talking about. And so I said, man, you know, I've obviously been one of your biggest fans, et cetera. He goes, oh, no, 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 man. Everything's great. It's all good. And he he was. At that point, he was great. And uh I think, you know, he had started to put it behind him, if you will, because uh, as I spoke to you earlier in the week, you know, there was no animus for me in terms of feeling negative about Michael. I I literally didn't even know that I walked by him. And ironically, recently, as in like a couple of years ago, I'm sitting there watching the 30 for 30 they did on the bad boys. And they're showing footage of the guys walking out and then the camera pans back or they cut to a big wide shot. I'm like, Oh, there I am. And so I'm walking behind Isaiah as, as he's kind of getting closer and I'm like, okay, okay. Oh God, there's the bench. So I'm watching and I'm like, and then I look at Michael and I look at him, look at me, walk right by him. And I was like, Oh God, that looks terrible. I felt awful. I really did because that was the first time I saw it from his perspective in terms of what it looked like. But had I had I been thinking with a wider view, been a little more, let's say, seasoned, I certainly would have stopped. Uh, it, it, it was nothing for me. It was nothing negative against Michael. We had had tons of battles in summer league, not summer league, but summer games playing at Fred's camp. So it, it wasn't a big deal to have a battle and then shake hands and move on. But that day I had the blinders on and, and I hated hurting a friend. Let's just say that. I, I didn't like that. Now, there was clearly some bad blood, though, between he and Isaiah because it's still going on. I mean, Isaiah is still trying to work this thing out. And he, Isaiah said, I think on uh, first take, that I've paid a heavy price. You know, he, Isaiah has said, if I could do it over again, I'd do it differently. And... Michael, you know, they showed that footage to Michael and he's like, oh, yeah, now, of course, now he's going to say that. But Isaiah, I mean, he has basically inferred that he was left off the 1992 Olympic dream team. And that's the only thing missing from his career is Olympic gold because he was on the team in 80 when it was uh, canceled because of, you know, Russia. And so knowing Isaiah, knowing Michael, how do you think that? played out i mean how much influence do you think michael had on on isaiah not being on the dream team that was coached by your coach chuck daly 
Well, Chip, you heard, I heard all the rumors you did in terms of, uh, I mean, I, n- I not only heard Michael, you heard other people, you know, Chuck, but I never really got down in the weeds in terms of knowing. Now, having spent time with Michael, I don't know. He didn't seem like that kind of person who might get involved in that in terms of, quote unquote, uh, picking the team, if you will. Uh, but I, I mostly just felt sad for Isaiah, meaning he never got that cherry on top of his career. Uh, to your point, was there in 80, had a pretty incredible NBA career, one of the best in the business, and you don't get to go play with those guys that he battled with for so long. But you know, I never really got too far down in the weeds as a player. At the time, shoot, I was trying to make my way and, and create a path for myself in the NBA at what I believe probably was one of the most challenging eras for that in terms of the level of talent you were seeing on the floor every night. No doubt. No doubt about it. What uh, now that you see Michael and it's amazing that this documentary does not get made without his blessing. Um, <laughs> that footage has been sitting in a vault for almost, you know, for 30 plus years. And now it's coming out as a guy who lived in the NBA at that time. What, what are your thoughts on this uh, last dance documentary? Well, I love it. First off, uh, and, and and as I as I explain what you're asking about, I, I must say the NBA at that time it was brutal. I mean, you talk about the Pistons. I'm at my first day of practice. I'm literally chasing Lambeer around the gym. He had set one of them Lambeer screens <laughs> with a mop, with a broom and a mop. Literally, that's another story. I mean, it's true. At just to, it was that kind of environment, one of the hardest screens I've ever had in my life. And I'll never forget, I get my bones shake right now, was from Dennis Rodman in a practice. Uh, Joe Dumars, I hit a couple of shots one day in a practice, and Joe accidentally kind of made sure I was on the floor and helped me up. I mean, and Joe is literally family to me. So that was the environment of the NBA. And Obviously, the Bulls didn't take too well to it, but you know I don't feel any negativity personally towards them. They were a great team and did an amazing job. I love that Michael's telling this story. I think the younger generation uh, get to see something that they've only heard about or read about. Maybe it's like when we were younger, Chip, people talking about Bill Russell or Wilt Chamberlain or you know that era of basketball. So. I think this storytelling is is positive and important and also hearing it from Michael's perspective. He doesn't do a lot of media, uh, as we all know. Uh, He's very quiet in that way. And so getting to hear him tell his version of this story, I think, is just awesome. And I I look forward to uh, Sunday evenings uh, to turn and uh, turn on the TV and watch. And you've crossed paths with so many of these guys as well and watch their careers. So that part of it is neat as well, Chip. All right, so let me, Lance Blanks here, let me ask you, you're chasing Bill Lane Beer around with a mop? Like you want to beat him with it? True story. True, true. That, that, oh. was, that was my right to passage on the team. I mean, you're, you're you know, again, I, I think I mentioned this to you a couple of days ago. You know, I went from watching these guys in the spring, early summer on TV battle the Bulls to uh, hoping to be drafted 
get in the NBA and make a team to the next fall or late summer, early fall, I'm literally on the court with them. And so that was intense territory, literally position one through 12 or 15 or 14, however many people you were going to keep on the roster at the time, that territory, that real estate had a value to it. And so I will tell you, though, after that incident, I got, relative to my contributions on the court, I got pretty good respect from my teammates. Because You know, I'd grown up in Texas, football dad and uh, tough environment, you know, every (laughs) – Every night was Friday Night Lights at my house. So for those you of you were backing know, down. Oh, God, no. I mean, anybody who knows. You were like, me, Lane Beard, let's go, man. Let's go. And oh, you, were I, on the, you were taking on the head, uh, you know, the head of the snake right there. Oh, I mean, yeah, I would have had no problem with it. But my teammates know. I mean, it's not, I'm not looking for violence or anything. I was just looking for a spot on that team. So, so my point is that was your rights to passage. It, yeah, around the league, but especially in Detroit. I mean, my brother came once and watched a practice, and I walk out of practice, you know, we finish up, and my brother's eyes were like saucers. He's looking, he's like, I'm like, what? He goes, that was scary. He said, I saw like two fights. Chuck kept the practice going. A guy was on the side hurt. I was like, yeah, man, it's like we grew up. He's like, oh, my God. I mean, literally, it was it, it was brutal, Chuck. It really I was. Mean, and and Chuck, no exaggeration. Chuck was always in these nice suits. He wasn't a big guy. No. But by God, he was running the, you know, he was running the monsters of the midway. No. And, you know, this is, you know, life is, life is weird in, in terms of, as you get older, you look back and you, and you understand things. And so one thing about Chuck, like when I first got there, Chuck used to tell us in the in the shoot around, and I'm I'm a rookie. He go, okay, guys, two point spread. It's gonna be a one possession game. I'm like, the heck is he gambling? What the heck's going on? And so I'm listening to this, and then it went on, and it just I just always thought, why would he tell us that? And then uh, sadly, I got older. In fact, I was in, he had passed. I was in Cleveland, and I went to his funeral. And I learned from his friends that ch- for Chuck, the, the odds always had to be against him. And I was like, that's why he would do that and shoot around. He had to use it as motivation against the team. I don't care. If it was a 30-point spread, he'd go, okay, perfect game. Guy's going to relax. already know it. You're going to relax. You're not gonna-. And so he always had the guys ready. And Chuck fit that team perfectly. And he was an amazing manager. Of people, but yeah, I mean, he wasn't your tooth get knocked out, poked in the eye. Hey, just move on, keep playing. That's what guys did. All right, so what Dennis Rodman, the funny thing is, and Isaiah mentioned this, the Bulls ended up winning championships with Dennis Rodman, John Sally, and James Edwards. Three bad boy Pistons. I mean, talk about. That were you surprised when Dennis Rodman, your teammate with the Detroit Pistons, is suddenly with the with the Bulls and then Sally and Edwards? No, no, because I think Dennis, you know, you might know there were some similarities to me, as crazy as this sounds, and as uh, one of my friends once said, maybe this was um, invisible in plain sight. 
there were some similarities to the Pistons and the Bulls in that you had mature guys who were obsessing about winning, who could absorb personalities or a personality like Dennis. Yes, he was a little countryer. He was a little closer to his Texas ways, if you will, when he first got to Detroit. But he did have a unique personality underneath that. And obviously things kind of went to another level from San Antonio and then back to Chicago. But I think those environments, there were some similarities that allowed both of those teams to accept guys that were on either roster with Exhibit 1 being, or Exhibit A being, Dennis Rodman. What uh, what were the conversations like in the locker room about the Bulls at that time? Like going into that Eastern Conference final, what what was the the trash talk and the let's show them? Because y'all had won. Y'all had beaten them to – I mean, you were a rookie on the team in 91, but they had just beaten the Bulls twice to get rings. So what was the talk like in the locker room during that Eastern Conference final? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 Chip, you, you mentioned uh, Forrest Gump of basketball, uh, which I'll take that as a compliment, so thank you. Absolutely. I, I, You've been I, everywhere. I, right. I, I have, and it's kind of like you don't know until you look back and like, oh, my God. So – and I've been blessed and very fortunate in this industry. So I've been everywhere, and I will tell you uh, what happened is going to Detroit for me was a blessing and a curse, and I'm going to answer your question. It was a a curse in that you're going to a two-time championship team, been to the finals, I guess, what, three years in a row, not a lot of room or space to – and short margin for error – in terms of when you get on the court with opportunity. But it was a blessing in in that I came out of there with knowledge that I've been able to take with me for the rest of my life. We we were one of the first teams in Detroit to have uh, a team playing, round ball one. So I, as crazy as it sounds, maybe it was after that big fight early in the practice with Sit. On the plane in the back, we, we had a seating where you were sitting at a table. Lambeer sat directly across from me. Joe sat to my left. I can see him in my mind's eye. And Isaiah sat across from Joe. And I did that for roughly, you know, 20, 24 months. And the lessons that I got from watching those guys, it was like literally sitting in a boardroom with CEOs of these major corporations in terms of their knowledge and their uh, ability to strategize what made sense for that team and organization for winning. And at that time, Jack McCloskey, the general manager, and Chuck Daly, the coach, gave those guys a lot of ownership of the team. And I had a front row seat of listening and learning the other side you're talking about the the trash talk you know that was that was a moniker that was a role it was you know building off of something i heard joe dumar say you know it's like a movie You, you every movie has an antagonist and you know you have a good guy as well well this team played the role of the antagonist and it was all about winning and putting banners up in Auburn Hills, which they did. 
And so it, it, when it came time to step off that court and be together, it was all about strategizing, whether you're playing the Knicks, playing the Bulls, playing the Lakers. And I, I mean, literally all the way to the end. I mean, and and I, the end being the game four in Auburn Hills when the team was swept. But this team, Chip, these guys were – we're talking about some really, really brilliant minds as it relates to basketball. Well, and the bad boys, I mean, they loved it, right? I mean, and who was the, was it the brains behind it? Chuck? Was it Bill? Who, you know who? what? Yeah, I, I think, honestly, and I don't want to make this about me because obviously I was a very small kernel of corn in, in something much larger. Uh, but I, if you if you know Texas basketball history, Coach Penders had a we had a little bit of a similar persona, if you will, at the college level. And Jack drafted me because I probably was Exhibit A or one of as part of that with those Texas teams. The reason I the reason I mentioned that is because I think in large part Chuck was behind that, as in. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Jack was behind that. Jack, Jack McCloskey, because he made most of the personnel decisions at the time. And so I know I had somewhat of a, you know, I had a pretty good a high school career. Uh, so very uh, subpar start at Virginia and then kind of a comeback at Texas. Joe Dumars from McNeese, small school, uh, West Louisiana. Um, Dennis Rodman, uh, small town Oklahoma, worked uh, worked at a, an airport. Uh, Isaiah always fighting for respect, had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because he had you know such a tough time getting the championships. And then throw in Chuck Daly, who was the coach again. He always had to have the odds stacked against him. He he took he 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 took that kind of attitude. In fact, Chip, I was watching a, uh, I was watching a video before I got to uh, Detroit, and and it was the Pistons. I think when they won against Portland, and if you if you look at the, this particular video, it was on the championship run. They they won in they won in Portland, but the camera pans right to Chuck's face, and he I saw him have this expression like, "Oh my God, we won." And I was almost like he had stacked the deck so tough against himself. He literally surprised himself. And I think that that team needed people who could have things against them. And that, to me, was the driving force. I think it started probably with Jack because of the kind of guys that he put on that team. And there are others. I mean, Mark Aguirre, there was, who was traded uh, from Dallas, and, and the, Vinnie Johnson, the list goes on. Uh, but Jack did, he did a very good job in the type of personnel he brought to that organization. All right. Well, speaking of GMs, I want you to put on your GM hat because you, you were the GM, assistant GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron was there. You know him very well. You went up against Michael Jordan. When you hear the debate about who's the greatest of all time, what are your thoughts when that question comes up? Michael or LeBron, greatest of all time? It, it, I, I'm glad you asked that. And, and my, my initial thought is laughter. Uh, one, because 
I've had the blessing of being around, spending time with both. Both. I never played against LeBron other than, you know, just watching him, obviously, uh, millions of times on the court, including being in Cleveland. And I've been on the court uh, with Michael. So my first thought is laughter. It's it's a it's, it's truly the way I feel. It's a it's a ridiculously uh, unfair comparison. Uh, and, and, you know, if we think of these great philosophers in time or these once in a lifetime people who, who come uh, in er- on Earth, typically don't compare compare them. You know, Thomas Edison or, you know, ben picture Franklin. Ben Franklin, who, what, you know, you, you don't. I mean, these guys or, or Albert Einstein, they're, they're once in a lifetime. Uh, so that's my first thought. It's just totally unfair. Uh, secondly, um, it, I, I will admittedly say I'm incredibly biased for both. Uh, but if I were having the debate, I'd have it on a few levels. The first thing I'd say is you can have the first pick and I'll take the other one. <laughs> <laughs> You, you pick first. I'll take the other one. That, 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 that's the first thing I say. The second thing I'd say is, what do you want to do with your so-called best? You know, do you want a guy who is the size of a, a, a Mack truck but moves like a Ferrari? Or do you want a guy who just doesn't lose? You know, so I think it's more nuanced and more complex to sit there and say, this one's better, that one, because the rules are different, et cetera. The last thing I would add is, and, and I, I, I truly believe I'm one of the most blessed people to come through this in, uh, industry because of the different places I've been and, and people I've gotten to meet. But one of my family members is the guy that Michael is on record for saying, hey, this guy was the most difficult guy for me to guard or, or to, to score on. And that guy is Joe Dumars. And so I've talked to Joe, I've watched Joe, I've listened to Joe. And so for Joe, he says basically the same thing about Michael. This guy was the toughest guy for me to guard ever in the history of my career. And we're talking about an era where there were amazing players. And so that to me tips the scales and adds to my bias when it comes to Michael Jordan. Well, it's it's an amazing uh, story. It's an amazing, like you said, an amazing journey you've been on. Anything else, Lance, that that is stands out with regard um, to your thoughts on any of this? You know, your time with the with the Bad Boy Pistons. Any member of the Pistons who's misunderstood or or maybe it's exactly right. I mean, as you're watching this Last Dance documentary or anything about Michael that you feel like people don't know, um, you know, that you've thought to yourself, man, I don't – I disagree with that or they got that just right. Well, first of all, as far as the Pistons, uh, I mean, I, I think in my time there, that – that was an incredibly classy organization. I've, I've had the blessing of working in San Antonio. I worked in Cleveland, uh, was in Minnesota as a player. I've been, you know, had a lot of interaction with a lot of teams around the league. And the class uh, that ran through that organization from day one during that era 
I mean, to me, was exceptional. And it was, again, I think, driven by, uh, obviously, Jack McCloskey and the leadership, but also the type of guys that came in there. And I understand the court thing and what happened on the floor. And the but to that is, that was on the floor. That was about winning, bringing home championships, and doing, uh, doing it the best way you knew how to get a championship based on the talent, the brains, uh, and the ability to play the game. Looking at Michael, in terms of understood, I think pretty much all of the stories have been told. Uh, just a good, a good guy, good, good person, fun-loving. Uh, he's more competitive than you've heard. Uh, I've seen it at every level. I don't care if you golfing, playing pool, playing ping pong. I'm sure all of which he does at the next level. Uh, but just a solid dude. And I, I also want to say, Chip, I think, you know, it, it amazes me how uh, sometimes little appreciation that some may have for what all of these guys have done. I mean, we're talking about one in billions across multiple generations. And I hope that people come away from this with whether you're for the antagonists, uh, for the good guys in the story or stories, et cetera. These people are incredibly unique in their ability, uh, in their expertise at what they do, and they're very rare. So I DVR this stuff and re-look re at it because there are a lot of lessons to be learned from them. Okay, I've kept you way too long, but I do want to ask you. I said I wasn't going to ask you, but I do want to ask you about the G League now offering uh, you know, contracts to kids out of high school. Do you think this was as much about the guys like LaMelo Ball and Emmanuel Moutier going off internationally and the, the possibility of losing those guys to the international game and just not having their own path for kids out of high school instead of having to go sit out a year or go to college for a year? And what do you think the impact of the G League now offering you know, sizable contracts, Jalen Green getting $500,000 for a year. Uh, what do you think that kind of impact is going to have on on the college game and, and for the NBA? Well, I think, first, the impetus behind this, to me, is a natural maturation for the NBA. First, it starts with the NBA itself and those 30 teams. And then, if you go back in history, there was a time when there was no minor league system that was connected to the NBA, there was the CBA, which, as you would guess, I played in, and that was a whole different league, and so teams would uh, sign guys from there on 10 days, et cetera, and then they got the G League, and then, of course, even women's basketball with the NBA, so to me, it's a natural maturation in terms of the growth of the NBA and basketball because there is a void that needs or needed to be filled, even filled, even before Ball and some of these other kids that have gone. Jenkins, the kid a few years back who ended up in Milwaukee, I think he went to Italy and played, and there have been others. And the NBA, I think just through sheer uh, manpower and the building of their brand, have, I think they've known that. And now is the right time to build out that part of the model in terms of having a place for your top flight, top tier guys. I don't think they're going deeper than maybe 10, 12 guys or so in any given year and giving them an opportunity to go from high school, 
not go to college and go to the G League. Personally, Chip, I love it. Uh, you know, it's 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 the most to me American thing you can do in terms of creating options for people to have when they're making decisions as families. I mean, think of it. Hopefully one day uh, soon, people will say, God, can you imagine back in the day there was only you could only go from high school to college or the NBA or Europe? Well, hopefully that'll be way in the rearview mirror and you'll have four, five, six options for families because to me in America, it is about options and it is about having an opportunity to to take part in all this milk and honey, not necessarily right now with this pandemic, but I love that these families have this additional option to create an avenue and a path to grow these kids to be exceptional NBA players someday. All right, and finally, uh, you played at Texas. You do great work for the Longhorn Network, analyzing Texas. What, uh, what, what do you think about, we're heading into year six for Shaka Smart. What do you think about where the, the program is heading into year six? Well, I, I, I think it looks on the face like it's in great shape to have success uh, in the future, meaning next, hopefully next season, depending on what happens uh, with this with this issue that we're dealing with globally. Um, I also think historically, and I think if, you know any, anyone could see that uh, there's been amount, an amount of success and also a certain amount of challenges in terms of basically not making the tournament. And so it's been a little up and down. As it sits, I think when you look at the success that Coach Smart had in the end of last year, I think they won like five of their last six games. They fell flat their last game, which a little questioning creeped in. So that would have been neat to see how they respond to that. But getting the kid here they got in the community, I think Brown coming to Texas next year, coupled yeah, Brown. With, yep, with most of these kids, if not all of these kids coming back next year, to me, it's the first year that he's had a this kind of situation where he's coming off a, a, a very solid ending to a season, bringing in another piece that he can add that is potentially a one-and-done level talent. I think it's his best chance to have his best season, that in Coach Smart and the Texas basketball team. Anything short of that, to me, would be a failure for next year. And I'm talking, you know, obviously making the tournament, but more than that. I think he's – Coach Smart is obviously a great coach, went to the Final Four, et cetera. I think he's got to take that part of what he can do on the road now, meaning from VCU, and show that he can do that here at Texas. And I think he will. Thanks so much for listening to this special edition of the Horns 24-7 flagship podcast. And thanks to Lance Blanks. Please become a subscriber of the flagship podcast and write us a review at Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Chip Brown.